The opinions expressed in the following video are not in their entirety endorsed by this podcast. They are instead the focus of our discussion today. This is your content warning. Seven reasons why I don't believe in God. Number one, not enough evidence. If God were real and wanted me to know, wouldn't he provide better evidence than what we have? Look at the trees, isn't good enough for me. Number two, indoctrination. Most people on earth believe the same way that their parents do or the people around them do. Number three, I can't make myself believe. We don't choose our beliefs. We either believe something or we don't. And I can't make myself believe, no matter how many people tell me, that I need to. Number four, there are some truly awful things in this world. Why would a God allow world hunger and terminal illness in children if he's supposed to be good? Number five, intelligent design is not so intelligent. Over 99% of the species who have ever lived on Earth are now extinct. Number six, the Bible. If the Bible were the word of God, wouldn't he make it more reliable? Wouldn't the Gospels have been written during Jesus' lifetime? And number seven, science. We learn more about the universe every day, and the God of the gaps is shrinking. Me and me and Joshua are absolutely uh, jealous of your setup. We just want to look as cool as you do. Um, <laughs> well... What's been really cool about being here at Blacksburg is um, they want to dovetail uh, apologetics with the campus ministry. And so one of the things that I said is like, listen, um, I'm actually building an eight-year plan right now for Virginia Tech and the campus ministry. And one of the things that, you know, I told him is like, listen, if if I'm going to be here and I'm going to do campus work, we have to have a, a social media plan. We have to have a social media platform. And, um, you know, I don't have the resources to get what I need. And they were just like, get whatever you need. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm like, like even like for my office, they're like, I went in there and I said, Hey, I got this little small room, you know, um, what's my budget for my office? And they're like, you don't have one, get whatever you need. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm yeah. like, what? I'm, I'm, like, what? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I still don't have my second shelf up, but I need to paint the room. It's like yeah. a, a, a yellowish color. I need to paint it like gray or something like that. But there you go. they've been super uh, kind. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. What they've done. Yeah, and so awesome when churches can, can like we're, really get we're building out a plan totally. where every semester is in a, every, every spring semester is an apologetics topic. Um, and then for their spring break, we go on what we call immersion week where we're going to go to a particular place domestically and engage with people that don't think like us. So, so next spring we'll do apologetics and then we'll go to Austin, Texas. And we're in the process. I'm in the process of talking to some people down there who are atheists Nice uh, about coming in and just having a conversation yeah, that's awesome. the group and the group interacting. Then we debrief. And so we'll do that this year or, or next year. And then the year after that, 2024, uh, we'll, we're going to do Mormonism. We're going to go out to Utah and we're going to talk to Mormons. And then That'll the year awesome. after that, we're going to do Islam and we're going to go up to New York and we're going to, you know, travel to different mosques and just sit, listen, have conversations, talk and engage that way. By the time the students get out, of uh tech they've been on four domestic 
yeah. uh, what I call intellectual mission trips, and they've been on at least two international mission trips. Man, and is, so they become well-rounded. That is incredibly awesome because that's something that I think a lot of uh, grown Christians are somewhat, uh, I'll say, it, I think are somewhat scared to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and legit now granted logistically that can be difficult to plan out, you know, for the next four years, I'm going to spend a week in Austin and New York and Utah and whatever. Um, but it, well, that, that's why I have a, a request for an increased budget. But no, I told them about the idea and they're like, put it together and that's let's awesome. do it. That's fantastic. So, that is they've been insane. really been really good. So. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm super. I think excited. it makes it easier that for them to say yes because they know I've got a master's right. in apologetics. So it's not like, yeah, you know, you're you're sending somebody with right. them that doesn't know right what to do. Right. So that's awesome. And I'm gonna rope in some guys from the Daily Apologist to come with us. For in Austin sure. As I was well, about to say so. I expect tons and tons of content and videos from those particular trips. Yeah, so. we'll see how that goes. That'd be really cool. That'll be so. that'll be awesome. Anyway, so as we use that as a segue into what is now part two of episode ten. So we started out on episode ten uh, with the uh, the intents of doing this whole video from a guy that uh, if you haven't watched the first part, by the way, it's up. Um, go back and watch that. Uh, so you kind of know what we're talking about. We're following this guy called Jesus Unfollower. It's what he calls himself. Uh, really popular TikTok atheist. And he gave seven reasons as to why he no longer believes in God. Grew up a Christian in the south southern part of the United States. I haven't ever been able to find a video where he talks about where he grew up specifically. Um, but he grew up in the south. Um, grew up as a as a Christian and now is an atheist. And he gave seven reasons as to why he no longer believes in God. And we said, you know what, we're going to tackle all seven of these in one video. And I think like halfway through, we're like, yeah, this was a bad idea. So this is a two-parter. We have on, obviously, myself, Joshua, and uh, Dean, who is one, I guess, what, one-fifth, one-sixth, the Daily Apologist, something along those lines, uh, campus minister at the Blacksburg Church of Christ uh, over at Virginia Tech. Um, So super excited to have you on again. Like I said, if you haven't watched part one, go back Watch part one so you kind of know what we're talking about. We covered his top three and a half is what I'm going to call it, his top three and a half reasons. He claimed that there was not enough evidence uh, to support the idea that God exists. And uh, we briefly mentioned uh, stuff like the fine-tuning argument. Uh, the, I think Dean's favorite was the the Kalan cosmological argument, if I'm saying Stay that. Stay calm and Kalam. There you go. Um, so... We talked about that. Uh, we talked about uh, his number two reason was the idea that uh, of indoctrination is the fact that um, at a different video, I think he mentioned that nearly 90% of everybody in the world believes just whatever their parents believe, whatever their parents taught them. Um, and then he also talked about how he can't make himself believe, right? He gets a lot of Christians saying, well, you know, just, just believe, just have faith. You, you can't force yourself um, to believe something that isn't true. And I think we made the argument that we're not asking you to force yourself to believe. We're just asking, you know, which is uh, a more rational, logical side to be on. And we kind of touched on, which we're going to start today, uh, point number four. So if you haven't watched the first part, again, real quick, go back, do that, because uh, we're going to start with point number four, and you're going to miss a lot uh, if you don't go back and watch part one. Point number four he made was uh, that there was too much evil and suffering in the world in order to believe that there was uh, a God. And I think in the last video, I made the comment that uh, if the atheists were going to make one, what I believe to be viable argument, uh, in a sense, viable argument, if you were going to pick an argument that was going to make the most emotional sense for sure, 
um, I think you start with the, the problem of human, uh, pain, uh, human pain and suffering and evil. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, there's a God who is all good, all powerful, um, but evil exists. So either evil exists and God can remove it and doesn't, meaning he's not all good or uh, he can't remove it. Uh, and so therefore he's not all powerful. And I think that's kind of the train of thought that a lot of atheists work their way down is you can't have an all powerful and all good God and evil exists. And so I uh, just want to get y'all's initial thoughts on that. Um, you know, like I said, I, I think that's a, I think that's, I'm not going to say it's a go-to. Um, and we talked about before we started recording how uh, Dean said you kind of break up atheists into like the, the Facebook atheist and, and the more logical academic atheist, I guess is what you said. Um, but both tend to point to, to an argument kind of like this. Yeah, they do. And as you know, he said last time, first, thanks for having me back again. I'm, I'm, uh, extremely honored to be back and have this conversation with you guys. And so, yeah, I mean, the newest Barna poll out about Gen Z, uh, the number one reason why they leave, uh, church is because of the problem of, of evil pain and suffering. So, um, it, it you are correct. It is a go-to by both the intellectual and the, the popularizers, um, in the atheist community. And so, um, when we talk about the, the problem of evil, uh, there's really two big pieces to it. There's the intellectual side of it, and then there's the emotional side of it. And what you were, uh, hitting on earlier, Nathan was the intellectual side of it. And you, and you've got it, uh, completely right. The way that it goes is if uh, an all loving, powerful God, uh, exists, evil does not exist, evil exists, and then therefore an all-loving, all-powerful God does not exist. And so really what this is um, designed to do is to put the the theist in kind of a uh, a pickle, in a, in a corner. Either uh, they have to say uh, one of three things. Um, God exists, but he's extremely immoral. Um, evil does not exist or God does not exist. That's what it's designed to do. And so I don't think anybody uh, in the theist camp is going to say that evil doesn't exist. I think we would recognize that evil exists. So now we've got two options. Either God exists and he's just immoral or um, he doesn't exist. And so uh, the unprepared uh, layperson um, is probably going to struggle with that. But I think there is uh, a third option, is that God exists and he has good moral grounds for allowing the evil pain and suffering that we see in the world. So uh, the first thing that I want to do, and I've got some notes here that, <clears throat> you know, as I've thought about this some more, you know, the first thing that I want to want to mention, there's no um, clear cut contradiction between God existing and evil existing. It's not the same as say like a, a married bachelor, right? If you are following there to be married is to not be a bachelor and to be a bachelor is to not be married. Well, that's not the same as God existing and evil not existing. Those two things could definitely logically coexist. Okay. So it's not an explicit contradiction. So what is, what does that mean? It means, um, that, um, there are some assumptions that 
the atheist is making. And we touched on a couple of these just briefly uh, last time we, we got together. And so the first assumption is that uh, if God is all powerful, uh, then he can create any world that he wants. All right. And then the second assumption is that if God is all loving, then he prefers a world without suffering. All right. And so in order for this argument to hold, at least the logical argument, uh, in order for it to hold, both of these hidden assumptions um, must be true. So what I'd like to do, if it's OK with you guys, is just go ahead and and briefly look at the first assumption and the second assumption. Is that cool? Yeah, go for it. OK, so let's consider the first assumption. If God is all powerful, he can create any world that he wants. Well, this uh, assumption, I don't think, is necessarily true given um, free will, uh, since it's possible uh, that humankind does have free will, it would automatically limit the type of world that God could create or would create, right? If God desires, um, and I would argue that if God is love, as First John talks about, then love being the highest ethic requires a choice. And so I would say, and this is maybe a, a deeper theological discussion, I would say that in order for God to maintain his all-loving nature, uh, he would be required to create free creatures to choose uh, to love him. And if that's the case, which which I think it is, I think that's the biblical standard, then it limits the type of world that God could create. Could create. And so it undercuts the first assumption of the skeptic's argument. All right. Um, so let me ask this question. That, does that make sense to you guys? That if God desires uh, free creatures to choose to love him, then it limits the type of world he could create. He could create a world where everybody's just a robot, right? And, right. and there is no uh, free will. But then I would say, I would argue that uh, that undercuts God's all loving nature. Show me uh, a genuine relationship without love. And I'll show you somebody that's been coerced into loving somebody, right? Been forced to love somebody. Um, and this is also another sidestep. That's one of my biggest problems with, with Calvinism. It is a deterministic, mm-hmm. um, uh, a deterministic way in which God has created people. He has forced people to either be elected or not right. be elected. Yep. So, um, so that's the first assumption. So as long as free will is possible, which I believe that it is, then it limits the type of world that God could, cre- could create. And so it undercuts the skeptic's first assumption that God can just create whatever world that he wants. All right. And then the second assumption is that if God is all loving, he prefers a world without suffering. Suffering. Now, um, what we said earlier is that God could have overriding reasons to allow the evil, pain, and suffering that um, we see. It could be uh, that God in his desire for the most number of people to come into a relationship with him uh, freely, he would have to allow some evil uh, to exist. And, and I usually, the way that I approach this, I, 
I use two examples from scripture and then a hypothetical situation. So think about Acts chapter eight, uh, Acts chapter seven, Stephen, uh, uh, brilliantly gives the Jews a history lesson about who they are, what they've done, and they've always, um, you know, opposed God, opposed God's uh, servants. You know, which of the prophets did you not stone, right? And so um, he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised uh, people of the heart. So he gets stoned, right? And so in Acts chapter 8, upon Stephen stoning, there's a great persecution that's brought um, against the church by Saul of Tarsus. Now, this persecution, as Acts 8 tells us, leads to Christians being scattered in Jerusalem, to Ju- Judea, Samaria, and to other parts of the earth. Well, that corresponds perfectly with what Jesus said in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you're going to be my witnesses in these various places and to the end of the earth. Well, you know, how did the church grow in the first century? Well, it wasn't because everybody was holding hands and singing kumbaya, right? It was because of the persecution. And so God allows that persecution to take place so that his church uh, might grow. And you could maybe even argue um, that we wouldn't be here today without some of that persecution taking place. And then obviously the the clearest uh, example of that would be Jesus and the cross. Uh, crucifixion is brutal. Uh, if you've ever studied crucifixion, um, it makes your stomach squirm. <laughs> it makes you uneasy. And so uh, in a very real sense, um, because I believe Christianity is true, God took the greatest uh, moment of evil uh, in the crucifixion of his son, and that produced uh, salvation for those who would call on the name of, of the Lord, who would repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And so it's not illogical uh, that that would be the case with Christianity. And what's interesting is... Um, when we talk about the existence of God and suffering, it's not the case that they are incompatible on the Christian worldview. It's to be expected, right? I mean, James chapter one, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because it produces something in all of us. And even, and even if we're not looking at this from a strict theological standpoint, um, how many people do we see uh, in the arena of sports who say, if I hadn't undergone this suffering as a kid living in the inner city, or if I hadn't undergone this particular piece of suffering and trial, I would have never become the person and the athlete uh, that I am. And so even just on a basic human level, I mean, I don't know if you guys watch the UFC, you guys have heard of Francis Ngannou. Yeah. I mean, the dude was at, at 10 years old, was was working in a salt mine. Yeah, that dude's unreal. And and right now he's the heavyweight champion of the world and he says what what prepared me for this and what makes me appreciate this and what keeps me focused and what keeps me determined is the fact that I worked in a salt mine. Yeah. Uh and so that's clear case of man, this dude underwent some extreme suffering as a young man but it produced in him what he is today which is and uh, which is one a really humble dude and two 
uh, a knockout artist, right? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. like the Tyson of the UFC. Dude, um, you didn't think cute. you were going to get that on your podcast, but there you go. Hey, I love it, man. I'm a huge UFC um, fan. He is he is scary for sure. I would not yeah. want to stand next to him if he's in a bad mood. <laughs> right. Would never want to take a liver shot from him. My body would probably <laughs> shut down. And so when we look at these two um, hidden assumptions, we see that as we think about them more clearly, um, we see that that um, these two assumptions are not logically incompatible. As long as it's possible that these things are the case, then it seems that the logical problem of evil um, is is undercut and that God and suffering can be compatible so long as God has moral reasons for allowing the evil pain and suffering. Uh, one, la- one last piece to that. Um, it could be that God, in his knowledge, uh, knows that for the maximal amount of people to come into a free relationship with him, that there are just some people who uh, are not going to come uh, into a relationship with him without suffering. I mean, how many people in your own experiences have you encountered who said, you know, I found God when I was at rock bottom. Uh, it wasn't until I hit the absolute bottom that I cared more about my kids, my marriage, and then what saved all that was God. I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, even look, once again, another example from Scripture, look at Paul. Um, Paul Paul didn't fully appreciate um, uh, or didn't fully, obviously didn't fully understand who this Jesus guy uh, was, what he was about, uh, persecuted the church. Um, and then he goes on later and says, listen, I, I did this out of ignorance. And God, you know, spared me out of mercy. First Timothy chapter two, uh, first Timothy. Yeah. Chapter one. Um, I, I was, I think it's first Timothy first or second Timothy. Y'all can check me on it where he talks about how he's an insolent aggressor against the church, a blasphemer against the church, the chief of, I mean, he goes on, he says he's the chief of sinners and it's not until he fully realizes that with the Damascus road experience that he then says, Oh, Oh man, I'm, I'm wrong here. Right. And so that's that's perfectly um, logical. That's perfectly coherent that for some people in order. I mean, look at Israel in the Old Testament. Right. Yeah. Uh, how many times was Israel brought back into a relationship with God uh, because God allowed them to suffer? Um, there you go. Yeah. So one one last piece to this and then we can we can move on. Um Another uh, logical or another answer to this logical problem of evil uh, is that um, it is possible that God could not have created another world with as much good in it, but less evil than this world. And God has good reasons for permitting that evil to exist. So let me explain this. So once again, uh, given human freedom, uh, this world that we experience may be the only possible world in which God could have uh, created to ensure that the maximal number of people uh, are saved. And so if this is true, it shows that God and evil can also uh, coexist. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, so thoughts. You know, well, okay. So here, here's where I think a lot of people run into the problem, right? Is because you said this a lot. It's all logical. Like all this kind of adds up logically. I think the problem that a lot of people run into is evil and suffering are really far from the logical portion of what a lot of people go through. Evil and suffering and pain and all that thing is a very emotional thing. And um, I think a lot of times when you go through life, it's really hard to add the logical and the emotional and, and kind of separate the two, because I think a lot of people would tell you when you're going through that, at least when you're going through a really tough uh, a road of suffering or that first initial shock, it's really hard to think through those type of situations logically and not emotionally. I think the other problem that people run into is uh, I think a lot of times what Christians say can get sometimes misrepresented. Um, so uh, the idea that uh, kind of the, the idea that you presented, Dean, is we're not saying that all suffering is good. Um, you know, we're not saying that all evil is a good thing. Um, we're just saying that there is a rational way of explaining why evil and God can both coexist, so to speak. Like it's not, and because I think a lot of times is right. uh, that that'll get misrepresented as, well, you just think that all suffering is supposed to be good for people because you're a Christian and that makes you incredibly insensitive. And now I'm trying to discredit you because you're not yeah. taking my, uh, emotions or feelings or, or whatever into consideration. And, and I think that it's important to kind of separate those two, right? It's like, no, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of evil that exists that's pointless. Um, but it doesn't mean that evil and God cannot coexist with each other. So this is how I would answer that question because I get asked by students about this a lot. Um, it's not that I enjoy the cancer. It's not that if I fall down uh, and break my leg going down steps that I just get to my one foot and say, woohoo, I broke my leg. I'm so thankful that I did that. Um, it's not the specific thing that I am suffering. Right. I take joy. And I think this is what James means. I take joy um, in what this is going to produce in me. Not what has happened to me, but what's going to be produced in me. Um, so long as I understand that uh, even in this trial that that I might not be aware of it, but God is is in some way, shape, or form working uh, to develop me. In James, he he uses this uh, this word perfection in James chapter one, and that and that word there is teleos, and that word means. Um, you know, to, to experience or to have a designed end, right? So this, this suffering that I'm going to, or going through is it, God is using that to develop me, to meet my designed end in some way, shape or form. And, and here's the thing that I would say about, about suffering is oftentimes if I try and figure out what's going on in suffering, I'm never going to get my answer. I believe that we see the fruit uh, of what's been produced in us through a suffering after we've come out the other side. And as we look back on it, um, that, that's just, that's just me. Um, because when we're suffering, I don't know that a lot of people focus on, okay, what am I, what, what's been enhanced in my spiritual walk right now? Right. Um, it's only after that, 
um, a lot of the times that we that we see that it's retroactive in which yeah. we see how God has manifested right um, our development yeah. in suffering. So I think that's a good point. We're not saying um, that we should, uh, you know, that we should throw a party every time that we suffer. Um, but it's not what we're going through. It's we're not taking joy in what we're going through. It's it's what God's moving us towards in our own in our own development. So good point. Yeah, I think that to Nathan's point, there's a difference between approaching something logically, like we said, versus the ideal that people have for what life should be in their minds. And I think more on the philosophical, academic level scale, more and more people, and this is true of a lot of philosophers, are coming around to saying, Suffering and pain is an intricate part of life. It's part of the human experience and we may not like it, but it's part of it. And we may have different reasons as to why that happens, but it's just part of it. But we live in a world that says you should be happy all the time. And if anything bad happens to you, then it's because the angry man in the clouds is against you. And, and that's not true either. So Which is incredibly similar and also still it's like it's far away and also incredibly similar to like Old Testament thinking. Right. That because something bad was happening to you, it's because you did something bad. Yeah. Um, Like it was a a direct punishment thing. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like going back around to where we were, you know, back in the days of Job. (laughs) Yeah. And and here's what I would say to other people just as a and especially um, preachers, campus ministers, youth ministers, anybody that's consoling somebody with suffering. Uh, the last thing that you want to do is throw out a syllogism to them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you don't need to do that. Um, but something that can help us navigate this emotional problem um, is we need to understand and we need to, as best as we can, help people understand that even though I'm suffering, um, God, God is not um, idle, right? It's not like he's just observing my suffering and just saying, Oh, well that stinks for you. Mm -hmm. Right? No. I mean, uh, in a very real way, as we see in, in the gospels, um, you know, uh, he enters into and shares, uh, inner suffering. This is what a Christian, a, a theistic philosopher, Alvin Plantinga said, he said, uh, he Christ, endures the anguish of seeing, or excuse me, he, God, endures the anguish of seeing his son, the second person of the Trinity, co-signed to the bitterly cruel and shameful death of the cross. He was prepared to accept this suffering in order to overcome sin and death and the evils that afflict our world and to confer on us a life more glorious than we can imagine. So in relation to our suffering, uh, God's not absent because God knows what it's like to see his own son uh, yeah. suffer. He, and, and think about all the things that Jesus went through on this earth. I mean, he knows what it's like to be rejected, to be mocked, to be doubted, to be deserted, to be isolated. He knows what it's like to be in hunger and need. He knows what it's like to be scourged, flogged. I mean, stripped naked, <laughs> humiliated, tortured, hung on a Roman cross. I mean, if there's anybody in the course of human history that can, relate to the various types of suffering that that we've gone through. I mean, he knows what it's like 
to lose a friend. I mean, he was at Lazarus's tomb and he wept. Yeah. Right. And so he knows all of those things. He knows um, what those experiences are like. And because he sits at the right hand of God, because he is uh, God, then he can, in a very real way, relate to what we're going through. And I just find that personally as an amazing comfort in times of uh, of suffering. And so what we need to do when people suffer is, is we also need to relay that message to people. Um, so, For sure. so For yeah, sure. so obviously there's this big difference between the logical side of it, but also the emotional side of it. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Um, I'd like to make one more point and then we can move on to the next piece if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Um, what the Christian needs to also do, the Christian doesn't need to let the atheist, uh, off the hook when it comes to the problem of evil, because whether we know this or not, or where we think about this or not, every single worldview has to deal uh, with the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them does. And so oftentimes what happens is we take these questions from atheists about evil, pain and suffering. And we're, and we're, um, so busy trying to look for all these answers to the logical problem, to the emotional problem. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? What about this in the old Testament? What about this in the new Testament? And we don't stop and we just say, we, we don't stop and just ask the atheist, well, how does your worldview deal with evil, pain and suffering? I mean, that's a really good question Yeah. because um, when you, when you think about it, um, uh, you know, when, when we look at the most common stream of atheism, which would be naturalism, um, there's some, some problems there too, right? Uh, has anybody ever seen, um, you know, uh, on a safari, you know, the lion that kills the zebra? And the lion says, uh, Mr. Zebra, I am so sorry, you know, for the suffering that you're about to endure. You know, I just want to let you know that, that other zebras, uh, will be there to console, you know, your family for their loss. No, that doesn't happen in the natural world. This is what, this is a good quote, um, from, uh, Richard Dawkins actually from, it's from a uh, river out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life. And this is what he says. Uh, on the contrary, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies like the crashing of this bus are exactly what we should expect. Such a universe would be neither, watch this, evil nor good in intention. Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice DNA neither cares nor knows DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Now what's so interesting about that is elsewhere Dawkins talks about the atrocities committed by religious people. And he says, I have deliberately refrained from detailing the horrors of the Crusades, the Conquistadors, or the Spanish Inquisition. Cruel and evil people can be found in every century and of every persuasion. Now, notice this. Dawkins affirms 
these moral terms such as evil and cruel. And the question is, on what basis does he make such a moral value judgment, right? He just said um, uh, there is no evil, right, nor good intentions. Some people get lucky. Some people don't. And that's just the way it is. But then later when he when he's critiquing religion, he goes, oh, well, evil and bad people have existed uh, throughout the throughout the centuries. Now, now watch this. Now, given his commitment to naturalism, what he just said, DNA neither cares or knows, and we just dance to it. Um, why weren't the conquistadors or uh, the crusaders or the inquisitors of Spain simply dancing to their DNA? Right. Uh, uh, in the same way that that uh, Dawkins, you know, would probably consider a lion. He would not consider a lion morally evil for killing, you know, the baby antelope on the plains of the Serengeti. So why make a moral judgment about any action? Since on naturalism, there there really is no good or evil. And I think that what we need to do as Christians is when we hear about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, uh, even before we answer the question, we need to go ahead and say, okay, how does atheism uh answer that. And more specifically, if you're a naturalist and you take the the route that Dawkins takes, and and I have found that um, to be exceedingly helpful because uh, one time I I wrote a question into a show, a debate show, and a gentleman was talking about um, the the atrocities of uh, Christianity. And he said, well, it wasn't too long ago where uh, Christians thought it was okay uh, to stone people who were who were homosexual or burn people who were homosexual at the stake, and so I I wrote in a comment and I said, so let's just say God doesn't exist, which is His worldview, um, if uh, morality um, is just a matter of um, opinion, or if we're we're simply dancing to our own DNA then why would it be wrong to stone gay people if it's just, you know, a relative preference like right. choosing ice cream? Like one right. person's chocolate is another person's vanilla. So, sorry, I get pretty uh, excited I, I, about I, I talking to atheists about the problem of evil. No, I, I get it for sure. Um, really good thoughts, really good thoughts. We're all going to move on, though, because he mentions another one. This is so I, I like the problem of evil and suffering. This one I also thought was kind of interesting. Uh, the fifth reason that he gets for why he does not uh, believe in God anymore is he mentions that intelligent design is not so intelligent, that there is no such thing as intelligent design, that uh, if God existed, why wouldn't he have made things better? basically. Um, and he, he rattles off this statistic that 99% of the species that have ever existed in the world are now currently extinct, um, which I thought was really interesting. So I had to go do a lot of uh, searching on that. And uh, that's a pretty, from the scientific community, that's a pretty uh, unanimous consensus on that, that statistic. Um, so like PBS, Scientific America, Discovery, uh, I looked up uh, the, the, uh, some journal of science, I can't remember the name of it now, uh, but most of them would all say that, yeah, over the course of time, which depending on which reference you look at could be anywhere from, you know, 300 to 400, you know, million slash billion years ago, however long, um, they've all kind of agreed that 99% of species that existed 
are now extinct. Uh, and so that would be a point to why um, there is no such thing as intelligent design, that if God were to, to design everything, he would have done it better, uh, which again, I think kind of goes back to Joshua's point that he made earlier that who gets to define what uh, better is, right? So like maybe the most intelligent design uh, was what was created uh, and everything that's happened as a result of the fall of man is the reason that uh, I think that's I think that's where my mind immediately wanted to go was, you know, maybe everything was uh, uh, created for the ideal world that God created initially. Uh, and then once the fall of man happened, everything changed after that. Right. Um, but again, it goes back to Joshua's point that like we've got this ideal world or, or end point in our head. Um, that might not match up with with what is reality, right? So I just thought that was I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, I want to give Joshua a chance to speak since I've you know been flapping my gums for a while. You're good, man. You're good. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's I think it's interesting though to I I hate the way he phrases it, and I, I'm a stickler for words. Like my my background is in languages well, and things like words, that. So words mean things. They do. And you know, my thing is, and his, his uh, little wordplay intelligent design isn't so intelligent. Um, it, it could not be more intelligent. You know, the, the intricacies of nature and the universe are so fine tuned. And, and I know Dean is just chomping at the bit to talk about this and I can't wait to hear what he has to say, but it's so fine tuned that were it any more or less in any given realm of whatever you want to talk about, that it would be catastrophically different. So uh, I'm going to let Dean take the reins on this because obviously he's more qualified to talk on it than I am, but it, it's, I, I really don't think of the arguments he's given. I don't think it's, this is a strong one. Yeah. Well, I want to say something real quick before I'm going to cut Dean off before he even starts. Cause I want to, I, okay. I want to point this out. Cause I think a lot of this, cause I got my, my brain got to thinking about this. I'm like, okay, so where do they come up with this 99% number? Um, I was never really able to, to find that, but I found multiple, I guess, formulas, I guess you would say. Uh, and multiple times this this kind of equation came up where they're they're estimating that 10 percent of species are lost every million years, 30 percent are lost every 10 million years and 65 percent of species are lost every hundred million years. And that all is dictated based on what you believe or how old you believe the earth to be. Right. So if you don't believe the earth is 100 million years old, you can't get to that 65 percent number. Um, and by the way, every single one of these articles that I looked up and, and kind of read through, every single one of them uh, says that extinction is expected in a total normal part of, of life, um, which if it's in, designed intelligently, right, whether it's from a, a formulistic standpoint or, a, you know, down to the individual, uh, whatever we're talking about, it just it's funny how intelligent design uh, can't be intelligent, but extinction can also be normal. Um, I, I don't know that that just is one of those things. Every single one of them will, of course, you know, a lot of what I read was referencing uh, through the process of evolution. But uh, every single one of them said that extinction would be something that you would expect um, just to happen naturally in the world, which I thought was was interesting, um, almost as if it was designed that way. 
Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, I'll let Dean go now because I thought that was I just thought that was kind of interesting um, that that's you know. So, so I I would say this if if um, this gentleman were across the table from me and we were talking and he, and he said, well, intelligent design isn't so intelligent. Well, this is where I think the atheist makes the mistake of assuming that because something is intelligently designed, it's perfectly designed where it could just be optimally designed, right? Optimal for the purpose that the designer has for that particular thing, right? It's reason why we don't put jet engines on Corvettes, right? We should. <laughs> why don't we do that? Well, there might be a way to put a small jet engine, you know, on the back of the Corvette. And we say, well, man, we can make this thing go a thousand miles an hour. But there's trade-offs always in design, right? Um, so uh, one of the things that that is uh, often talked about is, well, uh, the difference between the human eye and the octopus eye. Well, they say, well, the octopus eye is better than the human eye. And if, you know, the intelligent designer was, right. you know, uh, uh, you know, smart, he would have given us this particular type of eye. Well, um, the habitats of those species right. are different. And so what we want to ask the atheist is we want to say, okay, well, uh, number one, where in the text of scripture uh, does it say that everything is perfectly designed? Mm. Um, couldn't it just be optimally designed given the purpose of, for why it's been designed, right? So God says everything is very good in Scripture. All right, and so um, why why isn't it why is it illogical to think that God would create a world in which, in order to sustain the world, there would be ecosystems and cycles of um, flourishing and extinction based upon the actions and the adaptability of species. I don't, I don't understand why that would be uh, a problem. And so make sure that when you're talking with your atheist friends, and this is what I say to Jesus, what's his name? Jesus unfollower. Yeah. Jesus unfollower. Yeah. I would say, okay, well, um, where does it say in scripture that everything was perfectly designed? Um, and you're mistaking perfect, perfect uh, design for optimal design. There's always going to be trade-offs in design. I mean, think about uh, all of the muscle cars that are out there. Well, uh, I remember the, um, the Dodge Viper had like 500, you know, horsepower. So what's the trade-off there? This has been designed to be a muscle car to go really fast. Well, what's compromised in that design? Well, uh, gas mileage, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not going to go, uh, 35 or 40 miles to the gallon. Right. But one might say, well, you know, why is that? Then that means the, the designers of the, you know, Viper GT um, uh, in Dodge, well, well, they're just horrible designers. Well, no, they're not because they've designed the car to fit the purpose uh, that they have for that particular thing, right? If you want something that goes 30 or 40 miles to the gallon, you get a Honda CRV, right? Well, what's the trade-off of the Honda CRV? You're not going to get 500 miles an hour horsepower out of the Honda CRV, but you're going to get like 35, 40 miles to the gallon. Mm -hmm. It all comes back to what's the optimal design uh, that the designer has for particular things. And so, for instance, humans, 
um, we could say, uh, yeah, I, uh, I might, uh, wish that I could, could fly. Well, we don't have that capability, right? And so what would I have to compromise? Here's the question. What would I have to compromise in my own bodily structure in order to fly? And how would that negative impact and negatively impact me? Okay. And so when we're, once again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is where the atheist simply confuses perfect design for optimal design. And I think optimal design can fit right into that phrase and everything was very good. Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a words guy and language guy. So the, the problem with traditional Christian approaches to creation in Genesis one is we have equated, like Dean said, the word perfect with the word good. The Hebrew word is tov, just uh, good is a, is a good translation. There is another Hebrew word for perfect. It's the word tamim, and that doesn't occur in Genesis 1. And uh, I'm not saying that God created something to be bad, but I really like the, the argument of you know, creation being optimal. It, it goes back to what we talked about earlier with the problem of pain and suffering. You know, if Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were chasing after some animal or whatever, and they tripped and fell and scraped their knee, did they feel the pain of the knee scrape in the garden? Well, sure they did, you know? So people, and this is a, this is an issue too for, uh, for Christians, you know, they say, well, there was no pain in the garden. Well, is that possible? You know, could you, could you possibly have that? So it's not so much to me an issue of is there, isn't there, it's, its purpose, and uh, can we say that pain has a purpose? But here, with with the issue of uh, the the creative design and intelligent design, you know, God knew what He was doing, and the power of the spoken word brought that into existence. Another thing, I don't know if y'all want to get into this or not, but more and more systematic theology textbooks are arguing for an old Earth. And that, I think, is going to make uh, a very interesting argument for, mm-hmm. uh, for apologetics. Okay? So uh, it's, it's going to be something that we have to deal with for a long time. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's, and I think it's really interesting the number of people that you kind of run into back and forth that uh, will try to explain that side of it one way or the other. Um, you know, the Earth's dating and and all of that good stuff. Um, but yeah, I think you guys are, are both, obviously, uh, I say that. I don't want this to sound like an echo chamber or anything. Uh, Josh and I keep talking about how eventually we're going to have somebody on that just disagrees with everything that we say. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the idea that that perfect and optimal, um, you know, that trying to, to, to make a difference there uh, for sure. Um, anything else before we go to the next one? Go on. No, all right, let's go then. This one... Um, We'll spend as much time here as you guys want to, but I'm going to encourage people. So the sixth reason out of seven. So you guys, hang on. We're, we're getting to the end of this list, right? The sixth reason that he says is uh, that the Bible, it's just not reliable. Uh, you know, he said, would the Bible not be more reliable if the Gospels were written in Jesus' lifetime? And and uh, I know how bad Joshua wants to talk about this one. Um, but I will say, before we talk about this one, get to the end of this podcast or this video or whatever, however you're watching it, uh, once you finish this one, go back and look at episode four 
uh, Joshua and I sat down with Doug Burleson, and this is like his whole world. Uh, he's got a doctorate in this realm of uh, biblical authenticity, basically, uh, and why the Gospels can be trusted in in when and how they were written. Um, so go back and watch that one. It's episode four, I believe. Uh, it's called The Gospels. Um, so just just a, a selfish, self, shameless, selfish plug uh, on that one. Uh, if you want to get into that, but Joshua, I know you're, I know you're chomping at the bit to say something about this. Uh, the Bible just isn't reliable, and it, if, interestingly enough, right up until this point, I know we've referenced scripture here and there, but up to this point, one of the things that I love about the Daily Apologist specifically is if when you're talking about an atheist and the existence of God, one of the last places you really need to go to is the Bible, right? Because they don't credit that anyway as as being any sort of reliable method of measurement yeah and so now he's brought this idea that you know i think these last two are just kind of like oh here's my seven to tack on i don't know if he went with seven specifically as like a little like a, a hidden jab there like seven being that perfect number of reasons uh that he doesn't believe in god or what but uh, i do find it interesting that he brought up the bible um which again, most, if not all atheists will discredit it as being any sort of, uh, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, uh, any sort of viable or, or yeah. useful ter- term to measure anything basically. Yeah. Well, the, a big problem that we have to face as, as a apologist, if I want to use that term loosely, um, it is more and more is being written from an atheist perspective on the popular level. And it's being written by scholars who are making and presenting these things on the popular level. So for my work and what I do, and I, I work in, you know, the, the ancient manuscripts and original languages on a very frequent basis. And uh, people like Bart Ehrman, he, he's one of the leading, we talked about in ep- him in episode four quite a bit. So I won't talk about him a lot here, but, you know, one of the, he's a bona fide scholar. He's a textual critic in the New Testament. And he will say that there are more variants among New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's true. And that sounds like a lot. We have 5,800 manuscripts at least. And more get and more them, Josh. Being, get them. I, I, I'm telling you, <laughs> more and more are being discovered every day. Um, and no, no two agree completely. You know, I mean, it may be a, a difference in spelling. And the problem is most of those variants are simple blunders or completely unviable readings because you didn't have a printing press. People are copying by hands and, and people make mistakes. So, you know, is Matthew's name spelled with uh, the letter tall, tall theta, or is it just theta, theta, or is it tall theta? You know, it's Matthew, but it is a textual variant. Are we talking Greek or social clubs? What are we doing? Yeah, yeah for real. That's, That's what I know. <laughs> I'm a matter of tall, tall theta. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the thing about it is, that's a mistake and it's a, it counts, but no one cares about it because it doesn't change the meaning of the text. We do have right. 5,800 uh, Greek manuscripts, at least more and more being discovered. The Hebrew manuscripts are so intricately copied. There, there are problems with the Hebrew manuscripts, but thankfully we have the Greek Septuagint to help us. We have uh, the Syriac Peshitta and all kinds of other resources to help us figure out the wording of the text. Um, yeah, I, I could talk yeah. about this all day long. Right. Well, w- one of the things I want to follow up on is it's funny because at the end of the day, two two things I think are interesting. In the appendix of misquoting Jesus, 
uh, Ehrman says that these textual variants don't undercut any core doctrines of Christianity, which I find to be interesting. Yes. And then two, that's not even the reason why Ehrman stopped believing. No. He stopped believing because of the problem of evil. Yes. Yeah. Um, and suffering. Mm-hmm. So I find that to be interesting. Not not saying that because of that we should discredit um some of the points that Ehrman raises. Right. Um, but I, I guess my question would be anytime we have a conversation with somebody and say, well, these things are just unreliable. Um, we need to ask the question first, okay, well, what do you mean by reliable? Right. And what is your standard for, for accepting a historical document as reliable? Right. That's what we need to do. Sometimes we get into these conversations and someone says, well, that's not reliable. And we just start, spouting off all of these pieces of information what i want to do is i would just want to sit back real quick and ask really good questions like yeah what do you mean by reliable and what how would a document fit into that definition right so william lane craig has a really good way of of discussing this he says uh as far as reliable goes look at the time difference between the event and the source that records the event so, for example, uh, everything we know about Alexander the Great came 400 years after Alexander the Great lived. Okay, that's in, in the grand scheme of history, that's pretty close to the event. And, you know, it, it, it makes for a reliable source in, in a lot of ways. The Gospels are recorded within 30 to 50 years of the event of Jesus's life, ministry, death and resurrection. So if I'm going to trust an ancient source that talks about Alexander the Great from 400 years difference, why would I not trust a document that's so much closer to the events of the life of Jesus? And maybe part of that is because it records miraculous things and uh, it's religiously charged in some ways. And, and I can understand having to get around some of those issues. But right. you know, he, he yeah. makes the point, like, why wasn't it written during the lifetime of Jesus? Yeah. Well, it's pretty doggone close. Yeah. At least the autographs, you know. Well, so and so here's the thing. Right. I think that there's an underlying problem there uh, bet- on both camps, right? So I think Christians do this. And I think atheists do this, too. And Joshua, you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about um, how, how he was a bona fide scholar. Uh, you know, what what we accept and what we don't oftentimes boils down to, well, because quite frankly, somebody smarter than me said so. Um, and I think that's kind of the realm that we play in, right? Gene, you were talking about, well, what makes something reliable? It's like, well, because Dawkins said it was reliable or because Craig said it was reliable or whoever said, you know, this is the argument they used and they know way more about this stuff than you or I do. Therefore, they're correct. Uh, and I think, don't get yeah. me wrong, I think Christians and atheists both play in that realm. I think a lot of Christians will go, well, you know, Doug Burleson said, or, you know, Kyle Butt said, or, you know, whoever else that's, you know, way on up the list of, of well, the old, the old adage, the old adage was back in the day is that the Catholics have their popes and the church has their editors. Mm. Right. Um, I like that. and so, <laughs> yeah, so um, one, the other point that I would just piggyback off of what Joshua said is that we need to make sure that we're not talking about um, the event or the time of the event was recorded and today. It's the time of the event and when that event was recorded. Because yeah. some people, um, some of the atheist popularizers will be 
um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but, but a little sloppy in their critique and they'll say, <clears throat> well, you can't trust that it's written 2000 years ago. And so then I would ask the question, well, do you apply that to everything that was written 2000 years ago, between 2000 years ago and now anything that dates between now and, or anything that dates to, to 2000 years ago, you just categorically deny that those things are historical. Well, <laughs> if you're going to dismiss it for 2000 years, well, what about a thousand years? Well, what about 500 years? Right? Well, like, where do you, where do you stop, uh, you know, on that? And so I think that's a, a very good point that, uh, Joshua makes not a whole lot of Alexander the Great skeptics out there. Yeah. 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 Mike yeah, Lacona nice. and Bart Ehrman had a debate. Uh, I don't know how long ago this was, but it couldn't have been too terribly long ago debating the historical reliability of the gospels. And uh, Mike makes a, a really good point. He said, we have to judge them based on the criteria of what a historical document would have been in that time. You know, because Ehrman says, well, they don't write in chronological order and they're sloppy and they just, you know, throw a bunch of stories together, just try to string along some theological thing. Well, when you go back and look at ancient historical documents that record history, that's exactly what they do. It's very frustrating because they rarely are writing chronological order and it's a, it's really frustrating to study. It makes doctorate students like yourself just have headaches all day, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I keep Tylenol in every pocket and draw <laughs> my desk. Good deal. Well, and so I, I think going along both those points, kind of what, like what Dean said, you were talking about, you know, what, at what point do you draw that cutoff? I think the problem that, again, I think both sides have this particular problem is I think you make up your mind and then you look for sources to verify that, right? Um, I think that's kind of the the big problem um, that a lot of people have. And you don't have the same criteria, like you said, for, for every historical document that comes along. Um, but yeah, for more on that, for more on, on Bart Ehrman and, and the cohesiveness of all the Gospels and their reliability, go watch part, uh, part episode four um, of, of this particular podcast. Do a whole lot of talking about that. And then we're going to get to here point number seven. Finally, after two parts, we finally got into part number seven. Uh, which is the first time that he mentions the S word, uh, and that is science. Uh, he says that science is why he no longer believes in God, that the God of the gaps is shrinking. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with that term, God of the gaps, basically, I'm going to oversimplify this. I'm going to let Dean give the really academic response. Basically, 100 years ago, uh, when science would look at something and go, I just can't figure this out they would attribute it to God. Like it had to have been, it had to have some higher cause than what we're able to see. And his argument is, is that as over the last hundred years, 200 years, 500 years, whatever, science is catching up to the point where a lot of these quote unquote scientific mysteries are now being explained. We don't have to attribute uh, certain certain undiscovered phenomenon to a higher power. We just have to wait for the science to catch up to us. Um, this one is my personal least favorite because it implies, in my opinion, it implies that Christians cannot uh, believe both their Christian faith as well as science, which is the biggest reason that I was a huge fan and now I'm no longer a fan of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Uh, we mentioned him, I think, very early on in the first part. I loved Bill Nye, the science guy. And then he eventually got to the point where he was like, look, if you don't believe in science and you're going to be a Christian, you're stupid. Uh, was, I mean, that was basically what he what he got. He Stupid, ignorant, whatever the case may be. Um, 
And I think that there's there's a very distinct line that you draw that Christians cannot be Christians and believe in science, which I think is interesting because I think most I'm going to say this. I think most rational atheists would say that Christians pick and choose the science that they agree with uh, from an atheistic argument. Right. I've never met a Christian that did not believe in science from a biological perspective, like the idea of male-female. Uh, I completely believe that chlorophyll right, exists in, in green leafy plants. Uh, the mitochondrion is the powerhouse of the cell, right? Like nobody argues that sort of stuff. It's only when it comes to the idea of, uh, you know, when we start talking about explanations for why things exist, then all of a sudden it's like, well, you just don't believe in science. Um, and, and there's, like I said, there's, there's so many different ways to go about that. But yeah, that's the idea of the God of the gaps and why I personally really dislike that, that argument in particular. And I think you've nailed it. I think that's exactly what the God of the gaps is, is where there's a lack of scientific knowledge. Um, oftentimes people will fill that gap in with God. So for instance, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, when uh, there were earthquakes, people used to say, oh, well, the gods are mad. Right? right. Well, now that we know about plate tectonics, we don't need to ascribe that to God. Or, you know, when it, you know, lightning and thundered and rained, uh, they'd say, ah, well, the gods are crying. Well, now that we know about water cycles, we no longer need that explanation. But what's so interesting um, about this is that this is a double-edged sword. Yeah, sure, the God of the gaps isn't a great way to approach science, but neither is naturalism of the gaps. Right. Uh, you know, you know, uh, insert, you know, problem here. And mm-hmm. we say, OK, well, the universe must have had a beginning based upon the evidence. And they say, oh, well, the universe could be infinitely o- old. And, you know, we may think that science will reveal that at some point, just right. not right now. Well, right. that's that's naturalism of the gaps. Or what about, um, you know, um you know, miracles in uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament where people look at those and they say, well, those things don't happen anymore. Um, okay, well, what about this miracle right here? Well, uh, so for instance, in resurrection debates, what you'll often what you'll often do is you'll press the atheist and say, okay, well, what would happen uh, if, and this is what Mike Lacone used against Matt Dillahunty in their debate about the resurrection, which I've, you know, tactically acquired from Mike Lacona, is okay, let's say we're sitting in the auditorium and a terrorist comes in and he cuts my head off and everybody sees it. Everybody leaves the building. And then five minutes later, I walk out, my head's attached and I got scars uh, on my neck. Would you say that a miracle occurred? And what you will most often get is, well, I wouldn't say there was a miracle. There may be something that has taken place naturally that we need to investigate. Well, that's naturalism of the gaps right there. Yeah. Uh, I can't explain this, but maybe it's, uh, you know, something in nature would have, have have to have caused, you know, that. So naturalism of the gaps um, is just as prevalent amongst atheists as God of the gaps is amongst uh, theists. And so the other point that I would make um, is this, and I know it's a TikTok video, but I'd like some more clarification. Where has, um, <clears throat> so as, as theists, as Christians, we believe that um, God, um, you know, created the universe. That the universe is not infinitely old, 
but it has uh, it, it has a, a beginning a finite time ago. And all of the research shows that that's the case. And, and here's the thing. I can even take an Acts 17 approach and enter into the atheist world and show the atheist that this is the case. Let's just say I'm talking to uh, Jesus unfollower and I say, okay, well, do you accept uh, the Big Bang? And he says, yeah, I accept the Big Bang. I can look him right in the face and say, for the sake of this conversation, I'll go ahead and agree with you that the Big Bang's true, right? I'm not affirming it. I'm just saying, hey, for this specific conversation, I'll affirm it. I'll meet you where you are, and I will show you that all of the scientific research shows that from from 1920s all the way up to now, to now that the that the Big Bang is true, that a finite time ago the universe came into existence. Well, what does he do with that? Well, okay. Well, even if you have uh, a big bang, um, all right, well, that still requires a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. So you can show the the atheist, whatever begins to exist has a cause. You believe the universe began to exist, so the universe has a cause. Now, notice, I haven't, I, I haven't um, outrightly affirmed his position. I've entered into his position to show him that even if I take his position, it requires yeah. uh, a first cause, yeah. even for him to hold his position. And I, so, so I think that that, that approach um, is a way to, to meet some of these people where they are. And so I would just ask Jesus Unfollower, um, what model mm-hmm. um, of, or, of universal origins does he take? Does he take? Yeah. Does he hold the Big Bang model or does he hold some type of um, model that shows that the universe is eternal and let's have a conversation about it? Interestingly enough, uh, I actually watched a couple of, uh, of debates of a, of a, well, I say debates, debates slash conversations of a, of a popular YouTube atheist. And more and more this idea is popping up, at least that I've noticed, um, that people that uh, atheists that hold to the Big Bang will say that, that something existed, right? That the universe had that finite start but that whatever it started from did exist beforehand and could potentially be infinite, but it's not God, right? It was something that was just there kind of, you know, naturally uh, as, as you would put it, Dean. Um, But, you know, it just kind of happened in and of itself in that particular environment, which to me, I don't know if comical is not the right word. I just think it's really, really interesting um, that uh, I've, I've heard that argument more that something existed infinitely that had that start, um, but it wasn't God. Uh, so you've got to explain what that infinite thing was that isn't God. Interestingly enough, too, I think that, uh, and this may be a little bit off the course of what he had in mind, interestingly enough to me, we don't ever acknowledge uh, some of the things that science has gone on to prove in that were recorded in the Bible. Um, such as cleaning practices, uh, you know, food storage practices that were all given to the Israelites, uh, I think in Exodus or Leviticus, about what kind of plates they could keep and what kind of plates they could destroy, how they would quarantine dead bodies. Um, and, you know, we, we learn now, okay, yeah, this is what you need to do with uh, with the dead corpse because of bacteria and so on and so forth. And you're like, well, they they had it right you know, in Exodus, when God was giving them instructions on how they were supposed to do this, but 
you know, and science proved that to be correct. And again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we use the Bible as a science textbook. Okay. Please don't take that from what I'm saying. Uh, I just find it kind of interesting that there are things that science has gone on to prove uh, to be correct that were recorded first in scripture, um, which I think is interesting. And I don't know how an atheist would address that if they would say, well, that was a practice long before scripture was written uh, or, or how they would address that. I've, I've never had an atheist address that one with me. So, because again, most don't credit the Bible for being anything. It was probably something that was in existence. And then the Bible just commandeered it to prove a point. Um, but, and again, well, I know Dean has to go, so we'll uh, we'll let him off as as he needs. To your point, Nathan, just really quick, I would say I, I would encourage our Christian listeners to be very careful about trying to use the Bible as a scientific textbook. Um, sure. it, it, it's a pre-scientific book. That doesn't mean that it is scientifically inaccurate. Um, I, I think that the inspiration of the Bible allows it to be scientifically accurate where scientific accuracy is necessary. But it is a pre-scientific book from an ancient perspective, and we need to keep that in mind, too. Okay. So, uh, I, again, I know Dean has to go, but we, we really appreciate him being on and uh, all of his time that he's given to these videos. Yeah, no, well, Dean is I, busy. And, I definitely and, appreciate you guys uh, inviting me on, allowing me to, uh, you know, uh, talk about these um you know, very important, uh, subjects. And it's just another reason why we need, um, you know, more, we need to develop more Christian, uh, apologists and we need to have more Christians, uh, engaging in this type of social media effort because, um, that's just where everybody is right now. It's where the yeah. youngest generations are. That's where the millennials are. And, um, I appreciate the job that you guys are doing and the service that you're providing, uh, for the church with your podcast. It's, I've watched a couple of episodes and uh, it's really good. And so I appreciate you guys inviting me on. And, um, you know, as they've said before, you know, anybody has any questions, they can email us at the daily apologist at gmail.com. And we're all over social media, whatever, uh, whatever um, yeah. social media stuff you have, it's just at the daily apologist. <laughs> Check the description for uh, in both parts. I'll have the the links for the Daily Apologist in the descriptions of both these videos. If you're ever in the West or Middle Tennessee areas, please stop by and see myself or Joshua. If you ever venture out to uh, Blacksburg, Virginia, I know Dean would love to sit and have a conversation with you. Again, you can check him out and all of the great stuff that the Daily Apologist is putting out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Is Twitter a thing anymore? Is that still thing that's going i don't i i'm old it's, man. A, it's I a vortex <laughs> i'm old i don't keep up with all that stuff uh but anyway guys thank you so much for watching if you stuck with us to this point again two-parter videos are always kind of fun for us dean thank you again one more time so much uh thank for you. being on and, and volunteering your time guys we will see you again uh next time uh if you've got a video that you want us to address specifically by all means reach out to myself or joshua uh we'll put it on the queue for sure thanks guys